Gideon. <laughs> Gideon's not here right now. I have goofy cats. <laughs> bloopers, the blooper reel. I've never heard us have a blooper reel. I post bloopers to the Patreon all the time. Okay, well, I'm not a patron. Well, I'm the talent. <laughs> You're not a patron. You don't show up to the Discord. Can't be bothered to mingle with the rabble. I can't be bothered with the riffraff. <laughs> don't feel bad, folks. The riffraff includes me. <laughs> the riffraff includes my partner of 12 years. Is this 12? <laughs> oh, my God. I thought it was 11. <laughs> it's about to be zero. Oh, no. Oh, no. I love you. Previously on Bad Heroes, the Grey Frosts are a lineage with delusions of grandeur. So before you think about how I run my kingdom, maybe you should ask yourself why you don't have one. I read your home was conquered, Gideon. Then it fell without a fight. Now that I've met a Grey Frost, I can see why. Gideon, I'm sorry that you had to leave, but you have to come home. I don't know who I can trust anymore in Silverscale. We're still your family. We still love you. We still want you to come home. No, Amara, you don't understand the lies that we've both been told. What you discovered with Tonrir was that though you were told that there were many diplomatic meetings with Vire and that your family joined Vire willingly, that was not true. And your original home, the original Silver Scale, was destroyed for the expansion of Vire. You sent me away to experience the world. I have done so, and I have learned of your deceit. You have lost my trust. We know about the fall. You were right to fear our rage. This is not over. The wind comes into your room and whispers a reply. It's in your mother's voice. Please understand. I fear war. You should too. Sebastian was proud. It killed him. I love you both. Please be safe in Vire's cursed capital. Do you remember what's going on? I'm going home. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Some gargoyles came Run! to life and now I'm going home. Gideon. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember her sounding like that. Yes, this is my voice. <laughs> Does a gargoyle get you on your way out? Maybe. Oh, no. Okay. Gideon. You have come home to your family manor up in the Zutlong Peaks. You and Amara took a carriage from the capital city, not unlike the one you were dropped off in, except this one moved with haste past the city walls, rushing you home and away from Sephira's domain after your run-in with her in the underground theater. What was the journey back like? Tense. Tense. <laughs> Did you... And Amara, talk? How long's the journey back? I think normally it's a few days. But but we have the fleet horses. Yes, exactly. I think normally <laughs> it's like three days. Yeah, that sounds right. I think it's like three days normally, but this is a fast journey. And I think, I think you guys do it in a straight shot. I think midway there, 
you stop somewhere and trade horses and then keep going. So I think it takes you just short of two days. Okay. I would say Gideon probably talks with Amara, not about anything in particular because she's waiting until they actually reach the quote unquote safety of home before really starting to plot or plan anything since they literally just had that harrowing experience in the theater. Mm -hmm. It's probably mostly Gideon bickering with Amara about the fact that she followed her and... (laughs) (laughs) And then Amara is bickering with you about the fact that the place that your friend took you to conspire was full of spies, was full of gargoyle spies. And... I think if you allow her, Amara rests her head in your lap and spends the ride home largely in her own head. And you know that face. It's the same face she wears when you play Go together. She's strategizing. When you finally get home, it is snowing. It's always snowing up in your home. It's always cold. And I think as you step out of the carriage, the wind and snow hit you. And it's, it's familiar. It's almost refreshing. Mm-hmm. What was your greeting like with your mother and with Reina? Were they right there when the carriage arrived? I think Amara sent a message ahead and they've been waiting for you. Gideon would, would embrace her mother and would, would also embrace Reina. Kind of like a, a half-hearted hug. I'm sure that Gideon's mom is very like, oh my gosh! And like, <laughs> wanted to have like a full-on hug, but Gideon Gideon was like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to raise conflict right now, right when we get home. Mm-hmm. But there's still tension there. There's still unresolved conflict. But it is nice to see them. Yeah, and I, I think I mean, the last time you saw Reyna, they were pushing for you to leave. Mm-hmm. They were pushing for you to get out and see the world and, you know, sort of applying pressure on your mother, Cassandra, and your sister, Amara, that letting you kind of waste away in this library and waste your talent was unkind, that they weren't doing you any favors by letting you do what you wanted. And you know that Reyna was kind of the force behind that change. And you know that that change led you to where you are, which is to be in service to the queen. And your mom, you know, however you feel about her normally, since you've seen her, you now know that she lied to you for a very long time about the fall of your home, about your father's death. So, yeah, I I think there is a lot of tension in this hello. And you feel it from them, too. Amara is mad. Amara is very mad. And I think Amara starts to just walk past your mother. But I don't think she can do it. And I think she does end up embracing your mother and shaking Raina's hand. Just like you know that they do all the time. The warrior clasp. Exactly. They do the warrior (laughs) clasp. They do the, you know, the loud sort of whole forearm grab. And uh, after that kind of tense hello, what is the first thing Gideon wants to do? They want to spend time with you, but they understand you've been on the road for a couple days. The servants are probably unloading the carriage, taking baggage inside and whatnot. And yeah, are any of the people who work there happy to see you? I think that Gideon probably gets like some kind or or shy smiles from them. Mm -hmm. 
but it's not like a Danny sort of thing. Like, they're not going to be like, I'm so glad to see you. Oh, my God. And like run up to hug her because that's also just not what Gideon's like. Yeah. And I think Danny seems to be a, a strange exception. Mm-hmm. But I think on average, even though I think you've said that the help that works at the manor. Like they're they're more like a they're more like a staff. It's not like indentured servitude or anything like right. that. It's it's like they are paid a wage and they work there. And some of them, because you guys live so far up in the mountain, probably a lot of them are housed there. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing yeah, it's nothing sinister. They're they're employed <laughs> there. Yeah. But I do think there is sort of a seriousness to your family. And I think in the greater region of Silverscale, there is this kind of like almost mythic understanding of your bloodline, which does not extend outside of Silverscale. That legend has kind of died in the rest of the world. With time, yeah. Unless you were trapped in a mirror. Unless you're trapped in a mirror, then you know of Silverscale. <laughs> but um, <laughs> and I'd know enough to be appropriately frightened. But the people in Silverscale, they know who you are. And I think there is a sort of reverence and almost fear towards your family. So, yeah, I don't think anyone like tackles you to the ground because that would that would be like tackling royalty or almost a god. Nobody would do that. Yeah. So they, they probably exchange smiles, maybe some head nods and things just to acknowledge like glad you're back, but not not anything over the top. As the staff is bringing the bags in, Gideon, after finishing greeting the family, she's probably going to hastily walk towards the house with full intentions to take a real bath. Hell yeah. Okay. Tell me about the bath you have at home. So the bath that she has at home, you walk in and there's like a sunken tub into the ground with a bunch of like faucets and things like that that produce scented oils as well as different temperatures of water kind of like a bathhouse but for what almost like that yeah but it's just like this is bathroom it's not like the room that has a toilet and a shower it's like it is a room for this bath yeah <laughs> this ornate bath uh-huh. so it's like sunken in it could very easily fit six to eight people I don't know what material it would be made of. I almost want to say like it, it looks as if it's like marble, but can you imagine how slick marble would be? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a polished stone, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I picture like lanterns lighting the side of the room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lanterns are lit. There's those scented oils. Do you sit in it or do you float? <laughs> I would float. I think, <laughs> of course you would. I think Amara tends to be the one that floats. Okay. But Gideon Gideon goes in and like submerges her entire body and just like reclines against the edge and closes her eyes. Okay. Yeah, I think Amara goes to clean up too, but I think her cleanup is is really quick. And Amara goes to join the family in the parlor waiting for you. I think you take your time with the first proper bath you've had in a really long time. I think Gideon takes her time in the bath, you know, really enjoying the water, the space, the quiet, and the familiarity of, you know, her home wrapping around her. And when she finally feels she's done, she gets up, she wraps herself in not quite a robe, but like the closest thing would be like kind of a kimono or a robe, but it's Mm -hmm. just like a comfy wrap that she has for being around the house. 
And she makes her way down the hall to another very familiar and very loved room, which is her library. And she goes in there to kind of just like breathe it in, smell the familiar smell of all of her books. What does it look like in there? We've talked before about like stained glass windows and like snow beating up against them and just like a Mm -hmm. wall covered in books, floor to ceiling. Yeah, it's just like an enormous, like it's a very tall ceilinged room and the wall is just covered in books. There's the ladder for her to reach higher areas. Um, She does notice that it looks like someone has been in here either trying to tidy up or reorganize or like clean some of the books that hadn't been touched in, in so long, but they've left volumes kind of out of order in stacks. Mm-hmm. And that irks Gideon. Like she sees the stacks, disheveled stacks, and she picks up one of the books from the stack and kind of storms out of the library, slamming the doors open to go and confront her family and ask who has done this atrocity. <laughs> okay. All right. What is, what's the architecture like in your house? What's kind of like the decoration style? What are the colors? It's very, the color scheme is very silver and blue, Mm -hmm. um, a bit muted, like more of like a dark gray with blue accents. Like stone, like gray stone. Yeah, gray stone, blue accents everywhere. There's definitely pillars, like smooth rounded pillars, not like a Roman. And then kind of long stretching hallways. That's kind of the vibe. Yeah, so I think that you you carry one of these tomes to go confront your family who's been messing around in your library, and you walk the echoing stone halls of your home. Everything is characterized by this subdued grandeur, and on your way, you pass your father's study. The door is open, and it's been left largely untouched since his passing. What was Sebastian like? What's his space like? This is probably a room that as Gideon passes it, like in her huff, she's like holding the tome and she's kind of determinedly marching down the hallway to go reach where her family is. And she passes by this room and stops. She doesn't go in it, but she kind of lingers at the door, just peeking in Mm -hmm. and remembering that he was, he was very stoic and had a very strong presence about him, but with his daughters, he was also very playful and and kind. There was the ferocity that you could see from him on the battlefield was always exchanged for a goofy playfulness when he was around Gideon Amara. He sounds like Amara, or I suppose Amara sounds like him. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much a similar attitude Amara has taken after Sebastian a lot. Yeah, I get the impression that She's taken after your father, but you've taken after your mother. Is that right? That would be right, yeah. Yeah, so I think in his office you see maps. There's like strewn scrolls strewn over his desk. Like mm-hmm. he wasn't he wasn't neat and tidy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, you know, when he was looking for something, he would rip the whole room apart to find it and then it would be left disheveled until someone tidied somebody it. came and helped <laughs> tidy it up for him. Okay, so there's scrolls on the table. Maybe there's maps on the wall of the continents or, or maybe the stars. Mm-hmm. I think there are portraits of your mother and portraits of you and Amara as children. Maybe there are gifts you two gave him. The kind of awful gifts that children give, like a dragon made of macaroni. 
macaroni dragon. <laughs> it has been enchanted to roar. <laughs> oh my god. I think I think you feel a lot standing in this doorway looking into this room. Especially in the wake of what you what you know now. Death is death is a strange thing. Because you never know when it's coming. These people in your life, these permanent, almost immovable fixtures, can blink out suddenly like stars. They're light there one second and gone the next. And I don't think the shock ever goes away. I think even when it's been years, we still look at that star's place in the sky and expect it to be there. What is the last memory you have of your father? Can you remind me real quick how he died? What you were told by your mother was that your old city like crumbled from below. That, that it was destroyed by some kind of invader from below. Some sort of like subterranean mm-hmm. monster. Because your home literally cracked. The ground beneath it literally cracked and formed a cavern and crumbled. What you know now, your home was conquered. And reading between the lines, during the fight, that is what destroyed. That is what leveled your home and what killed your father. So you don't know exactly how he died, but you know that it happened during the destroying of the original Silver Scale. I would say the last thing that Gideon probably remembers is during the kind of evacuation of Silver Scale, where her father and his army were trying to hold back the invasion as best they could in battle. And he probably ran up to Gideon and Amara, who were with Cassandra, at the time, as they were fleeing, and he ran up to them, sword in hand, looking battle-worn, and just told them that they needed to get further up the mountain and that he would join them soon. Which one of your parents is descended from dragons? That would be Cassandra. Okay. I think your parents made a decision in that moment that Cassandra would be the better equipped to protect the children. Yeah. Because she had that ferocity. She had her abilities. Sebastian and Cassandra, I think, in a typical sense, would have both been out on the battlefield fighting alongside their joint army. Mm -hmm. But at this point, Sebastian convinced Cassandra, that it would be better if she took the kids and took the other citizens that needed to flee further up the mountain. You know, as much as she adores him, adored him, I don't think it took a ton of convincing because I think that they were always on the same page that that the heritage of Silverscale was not a place. It was you. That you and Amara were the future of Silverscale. And that what was home, what needed to be protected more than anything was you. So yeah, I think he he went out to face what came and she took you and Amara. I think Gideon lingers there at the doorway of Sebastian's office, you know, 
remembering him and smiling a little to herself at the memory and then looks down at the tome in her hand and straightens up again in determination and a little bit of annoyance and frustration and starts marching towards where her family is again to figure out who has, in her eyes, ruined her library. What is the tome you're holding about? It's just a random book. It was the one that was on top of a stack, Mm -hmm. but she knows that it belongs organized up in the shelves and it was just left in a stack of other books. It's probably something random like a beginner's guide to foraging or something. (laughs) Something. (laughs) To underwater basket weaving. (laughs) Okay. So you enter your family's parlor. A sitting room not far away from the foyer, the entrance to the manor. It was once used to receive and entertain noble guests and dignitaries. But over time, the number of visitors has dwindled. And in recent years, it is mostly a room for family meetings. But despite that, it has not lost its stately elegance. Silver-hued couches and armchairs with blue accents are arranged around a large, hand-woven rug with a geometrical dragon design looped around the edges and the Greyfrost family crest at the center. The wall opposite the door is dominated by an unlit stone fireplace, and on either side of the fireplace, stained glass windows look out over the courtyard. I think on the far wall there is a long table lined with food. Your favorite foods. And I think the smell of those foods hits you as you walk in. What are those foods? I think it would be very traditional foods. So like a big plate of steamed buns, big platter of the barbecue pork chasu, a big plate of like those those like crispy noodles. Mm-hmm. And it's all it's all laid out in the typical style, like family style, where all of the food is on those big serving platters and you just kind of take from those onto your own plate. Okay. Yeah, and I think you find that your family has plates and that Cassandra and Raina don't actually seem to be eating very much. Amara was probably just as hungry as you are and her plate, which was probably full of everything, is empty now next to her. And when you walk in, Amara is reading your journal. Not your first journal, but your second one, the one that you kept during the wild hunt and presumably finished as you left Vire. What are the last few sentences from that journal? The section that ends right before you left for Silverscale, what were your final thoughts before you came home? Hmm. That's tough. I don't know. Um... Her final entry in her journal would probably say something like, the situation in Vire is reaching a breaking point. Now that we know the stakes, it is more crucial than ever to know where our allies are. I cannot rely on Riva and Ira to stand with us, but I do suspect Tonrir is on our side. I believe I should extend an invitation to him to join us at Silverscale. So Amara finishes reading that, and she closes the book in her lap and sets it beside her. And 
you know that she has just told Cassandra and Reyna everything. They know everything that you have just done. They know everything that you have just achieved. They know how you fought Oberon. They know how you fought Lena. And I think you feel a huge difference in the way they look at you when you walk into that room. So Gideon will probably notice that, look at the book in Amara's lap, realize what's just happened, feel the energy in the room, glance at the tome in her own hand, and still determined to kind of finish her <laughs> her mission. She looks down at the tome and then looks back up and says, my library is in shambles. Who is responsible for this? Like holding the book up. <laughs> I think that your mother looks at you for a moment and then stands up and walks across the room and picks up a game of Go. And as she carries it back to a table in front of her, she says, I sent them to clean it. I knew you were coming home. You traveled faster than I expected. Gideon takes in a deep breath before setting the book down on a nearby table and then walking closer to the rest of her family. Who do you usually play Go with? I would say Gideon probably used to play the most with her mother, Cassandra. Either that or Amara, but Gideon didn't like Amara's play style mm. as much. Amara would play Go with Reyna, Mm -hmm. And it would be much more battle strategy. Uh -huh. But Gideon preferred playing with Cassandra because it was much more of a calculated intellect. Yeah, I think that Amara and Reyna both are talented tacticians. But they're not patient in the way that you and your mother can be patient. I think you and Cassandra, when you play Go... You play it slowly, you play it calculated, and you play the long game. I think Amara and Reyna make quick decisions, and their games of Go move very fast. Do you sit down across from your mother to play Go? Is she setting it up already? Yeah, she started setting the board. So Gideon will probably go over to the table of food and make herself a small plate, a small scoop of rice, some chasu, some one of the steamed buns, some of the veggies, and then walk back over to the table that her mother is at. I think right before you sit, your mother catches you by the arm. You're wearing a robe, right? Something like that, yeah. If it is the robe you usually use at home, I think it is beautifully decorated and features silvers and whites and blues and has like beautifully inlaid stitching. But it probably doesn't cover your whole arm, right? Yeah, it's probably like one of those half sleeves. Okay. It comes to around her elbow and drapes. Okay. Yeah, so when you came home, when you past your mother and Reyna on the way in, you were completely bundled up, I think, in 
like a coat, maybe furs. It was freezing outside. But now that you are inside, you are dressed down. And for the first time, I think your mother sees that you have a massive white electrocution scar running over your body. Because that was like on Gideon's chest and it probably branched outwards, right? Yes. So maybe just the tip of it's probably peeking out her arm. Mm. And we have talked before about it extending up your neck Mm -hmm. and down your arm. And I think she catches your wrist for a second. And when she takes that in, she reaches up and lifts your sleeve a little bit to look at it and then looks up at what part of your neck is peeking out. And you can see her doing the math. You can see her thinking back to that part of your story. And I think you see her eyes water for a second and then she lets you go. I would say she probably lets Gideon go, but Gideon, towards the end of it, was probably pulling her arm back to her defensively. Okay. Gideon just proceeds to sit down without saying a word, picks at her food a little bit, and analyzes the game board. I think in silence... Amar and Raina watch as your mother and you square up in a game of Go and start moving your stones across the board. The pieces in Go are black or white, right? Mm -hmm. Which color do you pick? Probably black. Okay, so in Go, the black pieces go first. Do you and your mother play in silence? Yes, I think so. Okay, go ahead and give me an intelligence check. Uh, Roll a 15 plus 4, 19. She also got a 19. Well, we're very clever, the two of us. (laughs) So I think your mother and you find yourself in kind of a stalemate. I think that you have taken an equal number of each other's stones as prisoners, and you hold equal-sized territories. And every time that your turn comes around and you can't act, you pass. And when you pass, you hand one of your stones to your opponent. I think you find yourself stuck in this stalemate and your mother, not lifting her eyes off the board, says, you won't be going back. Are are Amara and Reina just watching? Yeah, they're just watching you play. And I think they're watching with pretty rapt attention. And Amara is sitting next to you and Raina is sitting next to Cassandra. And I think they know that you and your mother are doing more than playing Go. It's like a battle of wills. Mm -hmm. What a a good metaphorical image you have drafted here, Dre. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. (laughs) So then, yeah, Gideon, also without looking up, takes her next move and says... That is no longer your decision. I think you see a look of shock pass over your mother's face for a second before she schools it back into a neutral expression. And I think you feel Amara shift beside you. And I think you know that she's smiling. And your mother says, No. I didn't want you to leave in the first place. It was Reina's and Amara's idea that you should go and see the world. You should have stayed home where it's safe. That 
Devil Queen can't have you. And Gideon says, I have no intentions of letting the Devil Queen have me, but I also have no intentions of letting you keep me here, under your thumb, under your wall of lies. And she takes her next move with a little bit more, I guess, aggression. Like, instead of just calmly placing the piece, she kind of, like, not slams it down, because I don't think you can do that and go. But, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, there's just more force to her movements of the pieces. I think you and your mother play in silence for a while longer. The only sound in the room, the soft clinking of stones on the board. And... I think between moves, you see your mother. Look at your mother. Maybe you see her better than you have in a long time. She looks sad. She's always looked sad, as long as you can remember, anyway. She's been really lost without your father. She has a crown, but she almost never wears it crown that is not recognized anymore that means almost nothing to the rest of the world. But I think you do remember right now, distantly, a time when she stood tall beside your father as the Queen of Silverscale. She's cunning, like you, and she's been maintaining this lie for nearly a century to keep her family safe. But now that that lie is gone, she looks a little lost. Roll intelligence again. 16 plus 4, 20. She got 18. So I win. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I'm so smart. You are. Hey, this is Dre Silvertooth, and thank you for listening to episode 50, finally episode 50, of Bad Heroes, part four of our second Vire interlude, The Scattered Pawns. You may have noticed that we are at the mid-ep and we haven't closed up Gideon's scene yet. Well, that's because I recorded with Kaz, and I recorded with Coolness, and each recording was a monster that could not be tamed into a double feature. So this episode will only be Gideon, and the next episode will only be Tonner. Welcome to the Gideon Show. I can't believe we've made 50 episodes. Thank you to everyone who's joined us on this journey. I am so proud of this story and thrilled to show you where it's going. I feel confident that by the time we hit the end, you will be happy you decided to spend this time with us. Since we don't all get to be together for our 50th episode, my dear players scattered across the metaphorical board as they are, we will be recording a celebratory Q&A with the cast and posting it for free to our Patreon in a couple weeks when Kaz returns from a trip. Since last episode, we have two new patrons that I want to thank for their support, Indigo and Shima. Thank you so much. Your kind words and financial support means a ton to us. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting the Bards. If you have been considering joining our Patreon, what better time than at episode 50? If you started at episode 1, then you've spent 
If I had to guess, I would say maybe 70 hours with us. If this story has been meaningful to you and you have the means to throw some coin our way, you can find us at patreon.com slash badheroes. Our Patreon starts at $2 a month for bloopers and early peeks at art. And at $5 a month, you unlock longer bonus content like interviews with the cast, producer Q&As where we dive into the making of the show, and on and on. Plus, at any Patreon tier, you get access to our private Discord and a truly, unbelievably lovely community of fans where you can talk with other people about the show, your favorite characters, and fan theories. We have a channel for that. Or just share pics of your cat. I genuinely cannot overstate how lovely this community of humans is. So join the chaos and the fun at patreon.com slash badheroes. We've got Wild Hunt merch at shop.badheroescast.com. My favorite is still a t-shirt design of Pax doing finger guns. We also have a Smudges General Store tote bag, cheeky travel stickers for Sanguine Silvis and Sosalia, uh, stickers of the sun and the moon affirmation that the werewolves use. I really like that one. And a pretty holographic moon sticker that says Sanguine Silvis Pack Honorary Member. We've got a few more things in the works, like art prints that are coming soon. But go check out what we've already got up at shop.badheroescast.com. Now, I would like to play you a promo for the lovely show Goblets and Gays. Here we go. Welcome to Goblets and Gays. We are a Pathfinder 2E focused podcast that uploads every Wednesday. In our flagship show, Blood of Kings, you can listen as a gaggle of gays grows into heroes together, from their adventures hunting down a lost city to trying to open the Feywilds to save the magic of the world of Cyrene. You can also join us every Monday over on Nat20 Productions' Twitch channel for Wayward Arcadium, our very chaotic game set in a magical school. Listen as our cast tries to pass all of their classes while dealing with drama from all sides. You can find our shows anywhere you listen to podcasts. Follow us on all social media channels at Goblets and Gays. Join our Discord community and support us on Patreon for early episodes and special releases. And remember, eat your vegetables. And there you have it, another Pathfinder podcast in case that is your game of choice. Check it out and tell them we sent you. If you are into social media, you can find us there. We are at Bad Heroes Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We can also be emailed at badheroescast at gmail.com. You can find content warnings for this and all newer episodes at badheroescast.com slash content warnings. Hey, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but if you want to be a real pal, you could leave us a review somewhere. Even a simple smiley face is helpful when accompanied by five happy stars. If you are listening on Spotify, you can pop over to our show feed and click five stars in the time it will take me to finish this sentence. There's no text, just stars. So if you've gotten this far and you're enjoying it, maybe consider taking a second and letting that sweet, sweet algorithm know that our show is pretty good. Music in this episode is November, Harbor, Great Expectations, Global Warming, Downfall, and Modem by Kai Engel. Very Kai-heavy episode. Very big fan of his work. We also use sound effects by Craig Smith and Chris5S from freesound.org. As always, our theme is Solve the Damn Mystery by Jesse Spillane. Thank you to our sponsors at Roll20. If you like tabletop games with your best friends, but your best friends don't live in town, or maybe one of them has to be extra careful during COVID so you can't sit around an actual table, or maybe you just don't want to leave your puppy dog at home without you while you fight goblins for like six hours, 
Then you can set up your own virtual tabletop and play games remotely with your friends at Roll20.net. That is all for now. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Episode 51, The Tonverse Show, will be out on October 28th. See you then. The wind howls and presses in against the windows and snowflakes whirl across the glass. And outside that courtyard is gray brick with skeletal looking trees with no leaves blanketed in snow. Enchantments keep the walkways clear, creating an almost maze-like path through the snow and between gray pillars. And looking out that window, comparing it to Sanguine Silvis, it feels devoid of life and color. I think that it's probably not completely devoid of life. In the snow, it may be hard to see because it's it has a way of blending in, but there's every so often you can spot these like small deer that are out there and their fur is is white and they're speckled with black spots that help them kind of blend in with the white of the snow and the black of the trees. Okay. Yeah, and I think you see them now. So to the untrained eye, it might look devoid of life, but you know better. And I think you see some of these deer by the old fountain in the back of the courtyard, that fountain that no longer runs. And you remember that during your nightmare sequence in Oberon's castle, you imagined confronting your family there. The game of Go comes to a close. And you've taken more of your mother's pieces prisoner, and you control more of the board. You've won. So upon winning, Gideon just stands. The game is over, and she stands up kind of abruptly. I think Amara takes this opportunity to jump in, and she says, She is not a child, mother. Look at her. We wanted her to go out into the world and find herself, and she did. Twice over. She is smarter than the rest of us and just as brave. This is her kingdom, too. This is our kingdom. And we won't watch it fade away. I think that without realizing it, Gideon's probably giving off a little bit of that cold fog. Because she's so... There's just so much anger pent up inside of her and after Amara says that Gideon in anger states this to her mother and to Reyna to kind of drive the nail home these curses that I've written about that you have read about these curses we encountered the queen isn't sending us on a mission to find these curses for no reason she is preparing an army She's building her numbers, building her forces. And what do you think she plans to do when she accomplishes that goal? What do you think her end game is? Reyna, they've been quiet in the background. And I think they speak for the first time and say, Conquer. A person of few words, Reyna. 
Yep. <laughs> not, not big with the talking them. And I think your mother stands to face you and says, So what? We've been conquered. The rest of the world can fight its own battles. You wanted me to go out and see the world. Well, I've seen it. Vampires and werewolves, fallen kingdoms and cursed forests. And I've faced down the worst of it twice. There is life. There is strength outside of Silverscale. And we would be cowards to know what is coming, but let them fend for themselves. What is it that Gideon thinks of when she thinks of that life, that strength outside of Silverscale? I'd say Gideon's thinking of Tonrir. She's developing a bit of a friendship with Tonrir. She has seen him go through transitioning through the curse and surviving through that and pushing through it to overcome the evil that was Lena. Mm. So I think that Gideon, Gideon's experience uh, that has changed her more than anything has been seeing Tonrir, seeing someone close to her go through this and persevere and continue pushing on because Gideon also was with Tonrir. Like they both shared that moment in the library where they both discovered mm -hmm. the tragedy that happened to both of their homes because of Iyer. And so she knows that he's coming from a very similar point of view of loss. And he is determined like she is to make sure it doesn't happen again. Your mother is staring at you in scarcely contained horror. Like you are manifesting her worst nightmare right now. And Gideon looks right at her and says, My father was not a coward. What would he think of you now? Ouch. <laughs> Ouch, my feelings. <laughs> oh, Ooh, that shit hurts. Okay. Just for fun, give me an intimidate roll. Nine plus eight, 17. Okay. So your mother's expression hardens. And she says, Fine. Maybe I should have shown you this a long time ago. And she turns away from you and walks to a sculpture of a blue and silver scaled serpentine dragon. It is large and familiar, and it sits on a pedestal overlooking the sitting area. The dragon has ridges along its back and a fan-like tail its body winding above stylized clouds. One of its clawed front feet rests on an orb set into the base of the sculpture, and that orb is what Cassandra reaches for. With a slow determination, she removes the orb from beneath the dragon's foot and cracks it open. And though that dragon has been there as long as you can remember, you've never known it to be more than decoration. 
Tucked away inside that orb is a series of what looks like spools of silver thread, neatly organized. And with a trembling hand, your mother removes one. She sets the spool of thread inside the dragon's mouth. And as she does, a light fills the center of the room, creating an image in the air over your family's crest. Now, if you want to make this a projector thing, great. But I have thought of a way to do it without magic necessarily. Okay. It can still be a mechanism. But you know those machines where it's like shadow telling a story via shadows? Oh, okay. So it's like she could light a flame in the dragon's mouth. And then the thing turns in a way that it casts shadows onto the wall that tells the story. I love that. Okay, so I think maybe then instead of like a thread, it's like a ribbon. And the ribbon is almost like a film. This is like a mechanism that centralizes that light to pass through that ribbon and create this sort of shadow story. It's still a very good image of her taking this thing out of this orb of the statue. And then she has to put a flame into the dragon's mouth to attach that film in front of it. And that's what projects the shadow out. Okay. I think this image, I think there's a wall across the room that it projects onto. And this vision that you see, these shadow shapes, begin to come into focus. And you recognize this shadow outline as the capital city of Silverscale. When it still stood nearly a century ago. It's proud architecture carved from the stone foothills of soaring mountains that surround it to the north and east, framed by lofty waterfalls that are frozen in the winter. And what you don't see in the shadows, you can remember, because the shape is familiar. Streets and more buildings fan out into the valley below, along the banks of a great river. And seeing this shape, I think even though these details can't be present in something like a shadow box, conjures up this memory of this place that you have from a long time ago, of the city at nighttime. Paper lanterns twinkling from upswept corners of rooftops, a constellation numbering in the thousands. In the shadow story, you see the moon in the sky, and you can see movement near the south gate. You see the shape of a small army, amassed outside the gates, wearing the distinct silver dragon-scale armor of the elite royal guard. And you see the outline of your father, Sebastian, standing at the front. And even through the shadows, you can see a defiant look on his face as a second, larger army approaches from the south. And then what you see is something massive, slithering through the snow. It's a skeletal snake, hundreds of vertebrae and hundreds of ribs. I think the shadow forms these massive jaws that unhinge as it approaches. And you recognize it, even through the shadows. It's that same skeletal snake that you've seen in Sephira's throne room, inanimate and unmoving wrapped around the platform leading to her throne. Only in this memory, it is brought to life. 
Sebastian stands proud at the head of his army, and he looks a lot like Amara. And you may have forgotten that the sword Amara carries is his. And you see it in this memory now, drawn and ready in his hand. And the image moves and shifts. And behind that army, behind that snake, you see a woman with her hand outstretched, moving her fingers through the air like a serpent slithering. And you know she is controlling this snake with her movements. And you recognize her from her tapestry in the library of Vire. You are seeing the Hellbringer, first of her line, Aurelia of the House of Fane, Sephira's grandmother. And then you watch as the armies crash together, and at the head of it, on opposite sides, your father and that snake. And when they meet, just like fire swallowed silver scale, you watch this skeletal snake engulf your father. And as the vision vanishes, and the shadows go out, you see your mother, with her hand tightly gripping Reina's, tears streaming down her face. And she says, This is not a game. Gideon looks to Amara. What is she doing? I think Amara looks frozen. I think she looks shocked. And if neither of you speak, your mother presses on. You will inherit Silverscale and its wounds. If you want a war, you can have one. I can't stop you. In a few centuries or now, but don't underestimate that cursed family, that cursed place. If you start this fight, every one of us may die finishing it. Gideon doesn't have a vocal response. She's just standing there. The very determined look on her face, but also underlying that is, is the shock of what she's just seen. But she is, she's not backing down. Your home fell 91 years ago. You were 35 when Silver Scale fell. You were, for all intents and purposes, still a child. In elven time, you have only recently become an adult. The first century of life is childhood, and you spent most of it here, in your ancestral home. The manor you live in now is high up in the mountains, and it was the first home of your ancestors who descended from dragons. In later generations, your people expanded to the land below and grew into the nation of Silverscale, prospering at its peak before the fall. And after the fall, the survivors retreated back up into the mountains, and you returned to your ancestral home where you live today. Your mom protected you, and Amara during that fight. 
What do you remember from that day besides your father and your mother splitting apart? Her to protect you and him to try to protect your home. Gideon probably remembers everything being very confusing, happening kind of quickly. She didn't understand all the context because she was still quite young. Aside from remembering her father and her mother splitting up, she does remember her mother guiding her, her sister, and and any of the other citizens that needed to retreat further up the mountain. And there were probably one or two enemies here and there that had split off or were coming in from different areas. And I feel like Gideon would probably remember her mother's ferocity in fighting and protecting her two children as, as they got where they needed to go. I think Gideon, upon her mother saying that Gideon would, would turn to her and she would still have a determined look on her face, but she would say, I remember, I remember how fiercely you protected us on that day. I am grateful that you won't try to stop me. I am grateful that you won't try to hold me back. But what would mean the most to me is if you could teach us. Teach us how to harness our power. Teach us how to protect others as you protected us. Gideon doesn't have a grasp on all of her abilities, doesn't have a grasp on how to use a lot of what she has because she either has not aged into it or she just never had a reason to use it. Spending most of her life sheltered in a library, she has some combat training that they've done and her and Amara have sparred, but she hasn't really come into her own. Yeah, I I think you have lived a pretty sheltered life. And I think Amara has been much less sheltered. I think Amara has sort of fought against that. But I think you have been your mom's baby. I think she adores you. And I think that thing that happened, I mean, she has wanted nothing more than your safety for your entire life. Somewhat to your detriment, I think. And I think she looks at you now and is definitely still crying. And her mouth is in a hard line. She looks very, very stressed, but she looks determined as she reaches out and takes one of your hands and one of Amara's. You are my reasons for being. So if you are set on this path, then I am with you. Gideon doesn't say anything in response, but she clasps her other hand over her mother's. Reyna is your mother's guard now, but you know before that Reyna worked with your father. Reyna was your father's guardian and probably your father's best friend. And I think you know that Reyna was on that battlefield with him. Reyna steps forward and I think Reyna is pretty soft-spoken. I don't think Reyna speaks that often. But Reyna steps forward now and has a conversation with you, which almost never happens. And they say, I wanted you to see the world. To find yourself outside of this home. I saw great potential in you, Gideon, and I have always felt you are destined for great things. But I should have gone with you. 
and I would like to go with you now. And for the first time ever, Reyna extends their hand to you in that same warrior's clasp that you often see them do with Amara. And Gideon looks at it, having never done that before, and looks at Reyna in their eyes and says, Thank you. Thank you for pushing for this. And then she reaches forward with two outstretched fingers to, like, touch (laughs) Reyna's bracer (laughs) because she doesn't know what to do. I think Reyna cracks a smile and just goes ahead and grabs your wrist and gives you that firm warrior's handshake. (laughs) And Amara reaches out and grabs your shoulder and says, Gideon, it is no accident that you were picked out of a crowd to work for Safira. It's destiny. You were chosen for this. We were chosen for this. Does Amara grab Gideon into a hug? Yep, I think it all turns into a big hug. So Gideon gets grabbed by Amara and pulled into the hug and reaches out to that table that has that tome that she set down. Mm -hmm. And she's still being squished in the hug by Amara, but she raises the book up in the air and says, I still expect my library to be put back in order. (laughs) (laughs) I think Amara laughs and gives you like a really way too hard clasp on the back. (laughs) And your mom still has tears on her face, but she, she breaks into a smile looking at you. And I think the rest of the evening is just you all spending time together. Spending time eating bao. Spending time eating bao and (laughs) just being happy to be home. You have a lot to do. But you don't have to do it right now. You can just enjoy being with your family. (laughs) 